You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. So thank you so much for doing the practice. It was so nice to share the practice with you and to see all of your hard work and your determination and your dedication. So one of the things that really stuck out to me today was to see so many different people, so many different bodies doing the practice. And I love this. And I think it's very important that we as yoga practitioners recognize the, the, the idea that balance and harmony doesn't mean uniformity and sameness. So I want to talk to you a little bit about how that can execute a really good relationship with your body and with the yoga practice. If we think that the yoga asanas are these pass or fail tests that we have to make our bodies do, then what can happen is we can injure ourselves or force our bodies to look like something that we've seen in a photograph or something that we see somebody else doing. But if we can instead think about that, to harmonize our relationship with yoga asana, to be in balance with our relationship with yoga asana, doesn't mean that everyone's asana will look the same. In true balance, everyone's asana will look like what works for them. So I want to encourage each of you to think about asana from the paradigm, not of uniformity and sameness, but to ask the question, here is this asana, how can my body harmonize and work in balance with this asana? Rather than being or operating from a competitive mindset, which thinks that you're not worthy unless you look like the best student in the room. What is the best student really? So then we have to, there's a lot to unpack even in that assumption. So if we understand what harmony means and we understand what balance means, we can delineate that or distinguish that from the concept of uniformity or sameness. So if it's uniform or the same, then we operate in kind of an aesthetic paradigm. So, you know, many people, maybe you have seen the Olympics recently. So the Olympics, they're judged by the aesthetic form and the sameness of the form. Every athlete needs to hit various marks and it has to have some uniformity. And these are judged by, you know, universal standards. Yoga is totally different. I feel like in a balanced yoga world, if there are a hundred students, there could be a hundred different ways to do that asana. Now, you as the student have to understand that this is a paradigm shift. This paradigm shift happens in your mind because it's in you, just like it's in me, just like it's in almost everybody in Western civilization that we operate in this competitive mindset where we think that we have to get to the top, we have to be the best, our worthiness is tied to our sense of achievement and accomplishment. We want to flip that script and we want to challenge that assumption. And by doing that, we have to, we have to deconstruct the notion of what balance and harmony is. So to harmonize, if you think of a harmony... Does everybody in harmony need to be doing the same thing? No. Think about music, right? If everybody was, imagine you went to a symphony and all anyone did at the symphony was play the same note. What a boring symphony. Everyone would think, oh, they're tuning their instruments, right? Okay, to tune the instrument, everybody plays that same note. However, 
to be in harmony throughout the symphony, many different chords, notes, instruments all express themselves and yet find a harmony. And in this way, the yoga class should be like that too. Many different bodies expressing many different versions of every different asana, vibrating with their unique frequency and yet in harmony with the whole. And this is something difficult to understand because sameness is easy to understand. Taking a cookie cutter method and making a stamp. And we make a stamp. We make a stamp. So the yoga practice is not a factory. We're not manufacturing asanas, right? So it's not like, oh, you come in after about three months, then you, we manufacture a marichasana D and we ship you out, right? It's not like that. The idea is it's more like some experience of attunement, some experience of synchronization. And so we have to recalibrate what harmony means. And we have to recalibrate what balance means. If balance is only sameness, unity, singularity, then again, we have this kind of pass or fail litmus test that we'll judge ourselves up to over and over again. And even if we pass one day, highly likely that in the next day, we're not going to pass, you know, because sometimes bodies change. And if the standard of yoga practice is the standard of yoga asana, then sooner or later, we're going to feel disappointed. We're going to feel like we can't make progress and we're going to feel like yoga is not for us. If we only judge the yoga practice by the fancy images that we see out there by people who are physically very proficient, instead of recalibrating, again, changing the paradigm and thinking, how can I make my yoga practice work for me? So you may have noticed um, at the end when we were taking the final relaxation, um, first of all, some people maybe got hungry and had needed to leave. But I noticed that uh, sometimes people have a hard time relaxing at the end. You know, they lie there and immediately become fidgy. I gotta get up. I gotta get up. You just work so hard for nearly two hours. Now is a chance to take rest. And they cannot rest because it's this, there's almost this state of mind that can't find rest in the non doing state. It's this state of mind that only knows how to do. So when we take rest, it feels uncomfortable. When we take rest, it feels like, no, let me up. I need to get up right now. And I noticed that what happens is all it takes is one person to get up. And then everybody suddenly is like, it's over. We better go get coffee. We better go eat. There's things to do. One person left. Everybody, let's leave. So it spreads like this. Peace and calm is harder to spread. Dropping down into consciousness is harder to spread takes like one person to be a little bit agitated and then very easily we can all become agitated. However, to really drop down into peace and harmony, it's a very different state of harmony and balance. There has to be simultaneously the individual commitment to the spiritual journey in balance and harmony with the group commitment to the spiritual journey. And this is a different way of thinking about things. You know, in the Western world, we are individualists. You know, our um, philosophy can, especially Western individualist philosophy, can trace its roots back to Rene Descartes' classic statement, which many, maybe some of you know from forgotten years of high school, I think, therefore I am. That ring a bell somewhere back in the brain of deleted school papers, right? <laughs> I think, therefore I am. So the epitome of Western sort of rational Cartesian thinking is this concept of thinking, 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 that identity is so closely aligned with thought 
The idea is that as soon as there is emptiness and nothingness, there's nothing, no sense of self, no sense of worthiness, no sense of being. So the individual is quested to constantly strive, to constantly think, to constantly be more than they are. Does this ring a bell? Does this feel familiar? Like, I, you know, you feel good when you're achieving and you feel bad when you're not achieving. But who sets the standards of achievement? Who sets the standards of judgment? In the, in the world of the yoga practice, it's meant to be a challenge to the very commonly held assumptions of the status quo about what balance, what harmony, what achievement, and what success is. However, it's very easy to import those standards of thinking to the world. We lie in the final relaxations, our chance to rest. What happens? Immediately, thought, 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 thought. Somebody moves. I should also move. Oh, I feel I need to go to the bathroom. Maybe I should go now before everyone else. You know, and then we lie there and we think, oh, I'm hungry. I need to, uh, maybe I should just go drink some water. I'm probably dehydrated right now. We just lie there. Totally not at peace, right? Because we are individual, individual, individual. And then... Sometimes what happens is when we can vibrate in harmony while at the same time being conscious and aware of our internal experience, then the thinking stops. And if we can be in the space between our thoughts, if we can be in the space where we are simultaneously an individual and simultaneously connected to all, then we find the balance that is what we're after in the yoga practice. So we are not all in the same but we are in balance and harmony with all, which is different. So again, if we go back to sameness, if our asana practice needs to be judged by standards of sameness, then what's going to happen? We're going to end up with one type of body and one age that will excel at the expression of asana. And then when that age and that body gets used up, it's over. Now that doesn't sound like yoga practice. That sounds like the recent controversy with teenage skaters from Russia in the Olympics. I don't know if anybody's been watching that, but they've been saying that there's a particular body that has to be a prepubescent female body that can do these crazy spins. And then after they reach a certain age and puberty hits, they can't do it anymore. It's an aesthetic standard, sameness. The quad is the quad. It's not an expression, right? It is what it is, period, end of story. This is an aesthetic, beautiful art, amazing to see. Yoga is not aesthetic. This is important. The aesthetics of yoga are intoxicating and seductive, but it is not the path. Understand? Right? It can be a distraction because we look over and we say, oh, look at her. Oh, it's so beautiful what she can do. Why can I not do? Oh, no. I will never do. And then we start judging, judging. We immediately make judgments. Anyone's body is better than yours from the judgment perspective. You know, anyone's body. We look, oh, this person has this benefit, this benefit, this benefit. If we look at ourselves, it's very difficult to see that benefit when we're judging from the aesthetic standpoint. And this is why it's considered a distraction or a delusion or an obstacle along the path. In fact, aesthetics as a goal, we could consider to be what Patanjali calls avirati, which is a sensory pleasure. And in the teaching of yoga, avirati is attachment to sensory pleasure. Consider an obstacle on the spiritual path. When we get intoxicated with how things should look, when we get kind of addicted to the, particular, the particularity of a form, this is another way to express avirati. 
Yes, also avidity is also getting lost in sensory pleasure. Like if you decide to party instead of doing yoga, that's also avidity. All right. So understand that too. It's also very just on a base level of I don't do yoga because I, you know, partied excessively. Then that's 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 a base level of avidity. But as you begin to be well grounded in the practice, as many of you are, we have to look for the more subtle obstacles rather than the very big uh, obvious obstacles. You know, too much partying, no yoga. This is obvious. Right? But once you're on the path, where are the small distractions that can lead you awry? And the subtlety of being attracted to a particular form and the need for our body to fit into that mold of a particular form is itself a distraction, an obstacle from the path, a form of sensory addiction and a form of avirati, this obstacle on the spiritual path. So we have to challenge our mindset. I can't tell you how many times I'm teaching and I see someone that definitely should be taking an alternative variation. But because the vast majority of people around them are doing something that looks quite athletic, they will not accept that variation. No, I will not modify the lotus position. I refuse. I can do it. Watch. You know? And then I'm watching and I'm like, mm -hmm. I think maybe it's better for you not to do that. I can do it. Watch. The best case scenario is it's just a really kind of, you know, misaligned, not feeling so good lotus position. Worst case scenario, maybe some of you have tried, it's injury. So what happens when we don't adjust the asana to ourselves is unfortunately the body can break. So we suffer and we can avoid that suffering simply by realizing, hey, I don't need to do that. We understand that analogy of what the body is, is a vehicle. It's a temporary vehicle. The vehicle is not permanent. The vehicle can do some things. We have to be honest about what type of vehicle we have. And this is where sameness is a problem. So if we think, here's my vehicle, I'm going to push this vehicle to its limit. There are some vehicles that can be pushed to the limit. And there are some vehicles that need to rev up the engine a little bit more. You know what I mean? I don't know if you have different types of vehicles. Now we have the electric car. The electric car at all times is ready to go. You know, it's all time. It just goes really fast. It's ready to go. Now, if you have, you know, a different type of vehicle that's not ready to go at all times, some vehicles need a little finesse, right? So if you have, for example, a hip joint that behaves less like a Tesla and more like a 1967 Buick, then you need to honor the Buick without being like, bad Buick, why can't you be Tesla? Right? We can't do that. It says the Buick. Okay, I'm here with my Buick. We need to finesse. We need to organize. We need to give a little love. We need to come to harmony. And okay, we didn't start. It's not a problem. I'm going to love the Buick. I'm going to put it back in the garage and it's just going to sit there. Good for it. Right? So in this way, the body is a vehicle. One of the biggest things that we have to learn along the yoga practice is how to work with our vehicle with love, with compassion, with understanding for the great gift that it is. So here's something to think about. Here you are, all of you, and many billions more like us, we are human beings on this planet. We have this human vehicle. We have this, these limbs, we have this brain, and we have this infinite capacity for feeling in the body. We feel things in our body. And not only do we feel them, because all the animal realm also feels, even the plant realm also feels, you know, the trees and the plants also feel, even the earth feels, every, every particle of energy in the world feels something. The human being, we have immense capacity for subtle sense perception, 
And we have immense capacity for emotions. But what distinguishes the human condition is consciousness. We have this ability to perceive the full flow of mind and matter. And it's said that it is only the human condition that has just enough suffering and just enough pleasure to want to walk the path of liberation. So that the animal realm is in the blissful state of ignorance. They don't have enough consciousness, you know, to question the way that we do. You know, they forgive too easily animals. They're too good for us, right? They're, they're out there, not, 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 not overthinking things, not questioning, oh, this, oh, that, oh, maybe this, oh, maybe that. And the, all you have to do to doubt that is to watch the video of the sleeping dogs when they place some food item in front of their nose. This is not a question of, should I eat this? Is it good for me? Maybe I, sh I shouldn't have a snack right now. It's going to ruin my dinner. No, they smell the food, they eat the food, and then they go back to bed. This is a, a wonderful life, you know, on some level. Um, but the human creature, the human being, we smell the food, we contemplate whether we should eat it or not. Even if it wakes us up from a sleep, I smell something happening in the kitchen. I wonder if someone is making me breakfast. That could be a pleasant treat. Bad thought that you think that because then you walk downstairs and you haven't been prepared breakfast and then they'll ruin your day. Oh, you've made only yourself breakfast. Oh, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Good for me. Now I get to go do yoga. <laughs> so the human being has this, experiences all the realm of emotion, physical pain, physical pleasure, and has consciousness about it all. And it is this unique condition of being human with this particular human body with just enough pleasure and just enough pain, just enough moments of joy and just enough suffering to make us step onto the path. And it's said that there are other bodies we could have, not only animal bodies, you know, but also bodies of bliss that aren't so physically incarnate. But the problem with bodies of bliss is that they have too much bliss. They don't want to work for their liberation. Why? If you took a body that could be incarnated for 10,000 years of bliss, why would you ever do yoga? You know, imagine that. You just live in bliss. Everything works for you. Would you want to, you know, wake up early and try to jump through and try to jump back and try to stand up from Urdhva Imagine if you could just do it all. Would you practice? Right? Weird when you think about it. So this is said to be the particular gift of the human incarnation. And it's only the human being that can step on the path of yoga. And to understand how to utilize the tool of this vehicle on this path is very important. Out of the countless beings, think of the countless beings that are incarnate on this earth alone. Think of it for a moment. Can you count the ants on this planet? No, it's impossible. Imagine. You can't even count the ants in a park let alone the ants in the whole planet. How about the birds on the planet? Can we count them? No, there are too many. Now the ants and the birds and the creatures and the critters and the fish, we can't count the fish. We would like to know how many fish remain in the ocean. We keep eating them. And then nevertheless, they are still there. We would like to know how many are there. Can we count how many humans? Roughly, because we all show up and say, you know, and we fill out forms and things so we can more readily count the humans. But there's so many countless beings, a staggering number of beings. Only take the sphere of the earth. And the traditional teaching says that the human birth is as rare as a bright shining star in the noonday sky. So today, when you go out and step out and look at the sky, in the, at around noon, at around 12 p.m., look up at the sky and look for a twinkling star, not the sun, but a twinkling star. 
every once in a while, because the stars align in a particular way, Venus or some other planet remains uh, evident around the noonday sky. And you can see a twinkling star in the noonday sky. It's a special astrological event. The old teachings say that the human birth is that precious, that rare, as rare as a twinkling star in a noonday sky. And here you are, and you have it. You have this blessing with this body, in this incarnation, with this body, with all that it has, all its pain and all its pleasure, all its flexibility and all its tightness, all its strength and all its weakness, all its blessings and all its obstacles. And this body has been perfectly designed for you to learn the lesson on your path. And each time we try to learn someone else's lesson, we disrespect the gift of our body. And each time we say, oh, maybe I just quit yoga. It's too difficult for me. Oh, maybe I, this is not good, this path anymore. We throw away the gift, not only of yoga, but of our incarnation. To understand that preciousness. How many years do we think we have on the planet? We live in this illusion. We're here forever, right? We have this, the younger you are, the more foreverness you have somehow. You know, the younger you are each day and eternity, you know? And we think about like kids sometimes we can say like that, you know, that we're going to get ice cream this afternoon, this afternoon, I will die before then. Like the whole of life is stretching out there. Now the foreverness fades at some moment. And then we realize this precious human birth, this precious human birth, this limited time that I have on the planet. So we say that the yoga practice, Satu Dirgakala, is measured in Dirgakala, long time. We take long time of practice the minimum time to reap the benefits of the yoga practice, utilizing all the benefits of our human incarnation is 100 years of practice. It's the measurement of a full human life. So we say, Satu Dirga Kala, you take practice for your whole life, right? Naira Antardia, without break, unceasingly, never stop. Not never stop, do asanas. You can't do asanas all day. Some people read that and then they think, oh, I'm going to do asanas all day. It's going to be my job. This is definitely imbalanced. You're going to be very tired and very hungry very quickly. Uh, we should take asana for some portion, but nairantardia, without break, means to unceasingly remember your commitment to the spiritual path. To remember, here, is this, here are these practices. I'm using them for my liberation, not only when I'm on the mat, but in every interaction. Satu dirgakala, nairantardia, satkara sevito. Right? So uh, now we have with the right intention. How can we have the right intention when we don't take the vehicle that we're walking on the path, you know, when we take that for granted, when we don't respect that vehicle? What is our intention? What are we after? Right? What are we after? Because your intention will color the experience of the whole path, of the whole journey. So when these three elements are present, right, dirga kala, the, then we have a long time without break, and we have a right intention, spiritual intention. This intention starts to change the paradigm of thinking. So we have a different way of interacting. Like we, I talked about at the beginning, changing how we think of asanas. This is with the right intention. To come into the asana practice to get. To come into yoga to take is the opposite of the spiritual path. To come in and work with. To come in and give of yourself to the practice. This is the intention. To come in and think, how can I show up for the benefit, not only of myself, but for the benefit of all? This is the spiritual path, not for the liberation of one, but for the liberation of all. This is the intention.
When we experience that, not intellectually, because everybody can think, oh, yes, intellectually, yes, intellectually, yes, we must all wake up. Yes, everybody should be free of suffering. But then you see some enemy of your suffering and you think, you know, <laughs> I think uh, maybe they should suffer a little bit. It's good for them. Right? Maybe it is good for them, you know, but maybe, maybe, who knows, maybe it is. Maybe that's the exact amount of suffering they need to step on the path. So when these three elements are present, truly and embodied in you, when you don't not practice because you're afraid that your teacher is going to get mad at you, or you don't not practice because you're afraid that, you know, your body is going to lose flexibility when practice is just who you are in every moment, when it's not an option not to practice, when discipline isn't something that you need to take on from above, when it's just something that you do because it's who you are, then Nairantardia is established. When you know Dirga Kala is present, you will only know at the end of your life. You won't know now. You'll have to look back at the course of your life and say, I did it. I became a more peaceful person. Look, I started off with this amount of misery in my life, with this pain, with these obstacles, with this hurt. Look, I experienced that hurt. Look, I hurt people in this way, but I came out of it. I did my best to make amends. I lived a more peaceful life. Wasn't perfect, but I can look back and I can see these years of practice have really paid off. Then we achieve what is called in Sanskrit, the drida bumihi, the firm ground. And from this firm ground, my teacher used to say, once you attain firm ground in the yoga practice, you will always continue to practice. If you believe this is your only life, then this is the only time you got my teacher used to say, you Westerners, you have to be in a really fast road to enlightenment because you only have this lifetime. You know, <laughs> I'm so sorry for you. <laughs> and for me, I have a few more lifetimes left to go. So in this way, Dhrida Bhumi, he would say that anybody who's taken practice, once you reach that firm ground, you always come back to the practice. You'll always come back. You never lose what you've gained at that moment. You never lose the ground of peacefulness. And you can see, if we look at the human population, that there are those individuals who are born in the light. They are born with blessing. Not just privileges like we're talking about in our contemporary age, but born in peacefulness. They're peaceful beings from the time they're born. They're born with love in their hearts. They're born with a natural calling to meditate, to do the practice. There are some people like that. We say that they're born in the light. What you do with that is up to you. If you're born in the light and you run to the light, you get stronger in it. But you can make a choice to be born in the light and run to the darkness and run away from the path. You come back eventually. There are those individuals born in the light who run into the light, born in the light and run to the darkness. Look at your past. See where you were. Were you born with this peacefulness and have gone deeper into it? Maybe you have reached already this firm ground in another life. Or... It's said traditionally that there are those individuals born in the darkness, the darkness of ignorance, the darkness of chaos, the darkness of hatred, dep depression, anger, ill will, negativity. Those individuals born in the darkness who run to the light to reach that firm ground, to spend the whole lifetime. Look, I started off with all this difficulty. Look, I had all this struggle, this anxiety, this hatred. I've worked my whole life to attain this firm ground of peacefulness that I'm on now. This is the path of yoga. Or there are those individuals born in the darkness, never find the path, spend the whole life in the darkness and run only towards the darkness. We can hope when we send metta, the vibration of loving kindness at the end of our practice, 
we, we, we say a prayer for the benefit of all beings so that those who are in the darkness can find the path to the light. So those who are in misery can find the way to their liberation, not because we think we're better than them, but because we know we were once in that same place. We all were at some place. See, the root obstacle that every being interacts with is called avidya or ignorance, the darkness. And as long as we rest in the darkness, then we cannot step fully onto the path. So whatever amount of suffering and whatever amount of pleasure that is the perfect mix to fully step on the path, we have to remember this vehicle has been designed for us to experience that. And in this way, our pain, even though we may not realize exactly what we need to get us deeper onto the path, our pleasure, though we may not realize it, is exactly what we need to keep us steady with just enough motivation to keep going and just enough struggle to keep us humble. And so like this, the, we find the tools of the practice laid out as we use this analogy of the path. To walk on the path, we have the vehicle of the body. We give thanks for this vehicle and we give thanks for the path. Right? Okay, good. So now we have a little bit of time for some questions. So if you have any questions, now, now you can ask. And also at home, you're also welcome to type questions. Nice to see so many familiar faces also at home. So nice to see you. Sure. Go ahead, Scarlett. What's your question? Hmm. Well, a good question. So I'm, um, uh, we repeat the question. So Scarlett is asking if I believe in past lives because she says that it would give her some hope to the mental and, and physical state of her being if there was more than just this one and done experience. Um, so first of all, I'd like to contextualize myself. I was raised with no formal religion. Uh, my grandfather is Buddhist, uh, Japanese, and uh, my uh, parents, uh, you know, um, that didn't, didn't, I lived in the Judeo-Christian universe because this is the paradigm of the United States, very much so. So I have taken in a lot of um, like formal religion from osmosis, but I was raised with no formal religion. So for me, I have always been open to any ideas. I understand that those people raised with a formal um, uh, sort of indoctrination in the Judeo-Christian teaching, the concept of a past life is almost like blasphemy. So we don't need to change our religion. Uh, to practice yoga. So we can believe in it. We cannot believe in it. It shall not impact our ability to do what we can with the years of our incarnation that we have. So regardless, if you believe, sometimes if it's, this is the only life you have, how precious is it? Sometimes if you don't have a thousand more, who cares? Let me spend this one partying. I'm going to, this is, this is my party incarnation. I'm going to get it out. And then 999 left to go. I'll get back on the path. Promise. Just let me, let me take like a gap life. You know, you have a gap year after you finish like high school. Let me gap year before I go. Let me have a gap lifetime. I'm just going to engage all of the sensory pleasure. I'm going to get it all right now. Everything I got, greed, fame, lust, desire, throwing a little anger, a little temperamentalness. Why not? Right. <laughs> that doesn't make you get back on the path. I don't know what will, you know? So, you know, in that way, it doesn't matter, in other words. Right? So you can find out yourself. Uh, my teacher used to talk so much about, you know, um, this basic thing of if you found yoga in a past life, that you'll always come back to it once you reach that Dhrida Bhumihi. And this is, a, this is a, a, a teaching that presents itself within the traditional um, Indian teachings of the Sanatana Dharma. So this is the larger philosophy that 
holds the teaching of yoga. Um, and so within that universe, as well as the universe of Buddhism, we experience this doctrine of reincarnation. And the basic premise of this isn't so much that, you know, it's not like, let me, it's not like, you know, uh, we, we are, it's not like we're here and then we just get another body like this. The idea of this doctrine is that without this body, who would we be? Right. So without the body, what's left of us? Really think about it for a moment. Without the body, what's left? All of our thoughts, our attachments, our aversions in the yoga practice called the samskaras. So when we finish one life, have we exhausted all of our samskaras? Oh, no. Right. We finish the life. Sometimes just one life. We generated more. I want, I want, I want, I desire, I desire. Give me, give me, give me. We have more wants, things we didn't do, things inside which have a yearning. The life is finished. The yearning remains. Then that yearning has nowhere to go without the body. So it gets attracted to another body that can fulfill that yearning. And in that way, whether or not we believe the soul's journey from one to another, we can think of, we can, for example, a way to understand a concept of reincarnation that jives with the traditional Judeo-Christian universe could be that the yearning that remains is picked up somehow by another life, another being that comes in, you know? We could see. Uh, if you're interested in uh, the concept of reincarnation from the Western perspective, uh, the, the, the person who's made the most um, kind of, uh, I would say, thorough teaching on this is Dr. Brian Weiss. Uh, have you read any of his books? Yeah. yeah. So if you can read Many Lives, Many Masters or some of the other books from Dr. Brian Weiss, who actually lives here in South Florida. I went to high school with uh, his daughter. Um, he's a, he's a good, he made, he's made a, done a lot of work in that perspective. And I very much respect the work of Dr. Brian Weiss because he approaches the past life regression from the paradigm of therapy, which is different, you know, than most people treat it as an exoticism of what were you in a past life? Ooh, were you the queen of Egypt? Or maybe you were the king of, you know, ancient Germany or something like that. And everybody want to be the king of this and the queen of that and, you know, the this. And we're like, oh, what fantastical thing have you done in a past life? So we can discover and we're trying to look and you were Moses and, you know, we're trying to figure out what that was. And this is this is Dr. Brian Weiss thinks this is complete garbage because the idea that he that he, you know, presents is past life regression therapy. He was a therapist that started to uh, regress people and just spontaneously they started moving out of this life into another. And he's not interested in what people were, but he's interested in what samskaras remain from the past life that you're trying to get over in this life that you haven't been able to get over yet. So it's from the therapeutic standpoint. And I find it very, very useful. And I have actually done a few past life regression therapy sessions with, uh, you know, not with him, but with someone that's trained on, uh, under him. I found it very, very useful. So if it's something you're interested in uh, and you want to approach it, I think to uh, take a look at what the traditional teachings say about it from the yogic standpoint, from the Buddhist standpoint, um, from the Hindu standpoint. And then also, Especially if you're operating in the Judeo-Christian universe, I think the Brian Weiss books are very, very, very useful to, to, to take a look at um, because they present it in a very um, thoughtful and respectful manner. Make sense? Good. I think I see a question in the chat from at home. So Carolina, hi, Carolina. Nice to see you. I think you're going to be coming here soon. Carolina says, how to handle fear. If this path leads you to want other things in other places in your life, but there is the fear of leaving the safety 
of the life you have designed what to do? Oh, this is a good question. So how many of you have made some life changes after starting yoga? Everyone? <laughs> Who is not? You know, I made a giant life change after starting yoga. The first thing was no more partying. This is sad, you know, then you live a very boring life. People are texting you. What are you doing? I'm on the way to bed right now. Actually, I'm so sorry. You're in bed? Yeah. I'm sorry, I'll talk to you tomorrow. And then you, you know, and then, and then you get reports of, and photos of what's happened over the night. And then, you know, and then you're on the way to yoga practice. Here I am. Take a minute. Exhale. You make some adjustments in what you eat. This is already, it causes some pain, you know? So suddenly people are drinking wine and you're asking for a kombucha, right? And so there's a change. And then, you know, we make a change in our lives. Maybe some people, I've talked to some people that felt that they did not engage in what is called right livelihood so that their profession was causing harm in one way or another. You wanted to change your profession. This creates a lot of fear. I have a friend of mine who was working um, in uh, a very, a, a very uh, expensive and well-accomplished law firm um, over in the uh, UK. And she had a very, uh, she got a good job and a well-esteemed position and everybody in her uh, sort of social circle was like, you're set for life. After about three years, she said, I am doomed for life, you know? And she, she had somehow thought this is miserable, 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 because immediately they started asking her to represent companies that she had a, a moral and ethical problem with. So she was having to defend um, the, the, the oil companies for their acts of pollution in the world. And she felt like, I, I am doomed if I do this. But they said, you know, you have to continue. You have to represent this. And, rep and all the things that she was representing in this big, expensive law firm were against her moral compass. So she asked for a small uh, period of time off and she went to India and she practiced with my teacher, Patabi Joyce. And almost every conference, she kept on asking him about, what is my dharma? What is my dharma? What is my dharma? She kept on asking him and he kept on saying, he kept on, you know, saying to her, you have to find your dharma. Your dharma is creating harm in the world and this and then every, once she would ask him once a week. I think finally he said, what do you do for a living? You know? <laughs> What is this creating so much harm? What do you do? And she said, I'm a lawyer. And then he looked at her. Mm. <laughs> I see. <laughs> right? She ended up uh, planning very extensively. So she saved a lot of money um, and she uh, made a big life change, but she did it thoroughly with intelligence and not on a whim. So she really, really thought it out and she saved a lot of money and she actually, uh, she left her job at that law firm and got, uh, went to get another degree in professional mediation. So instead of uh, litigating on behalf of the lawyers, uh, sorry, on behalf of the oil companies and other large multinational corporations to defend acts that she didn't feel were in alignment with her moral compass, then she started to act as a professional mediator. And a mediator instead tries to avoid litigation. A mediator tries to make peace in situations. She felt like, this is better. I, I cannot, I don't need to lose my entire training and my degree, but I'm going to find a way to use it for a, in a way that is more right livelihood. So she went on a long path and it was, it, I talked to her a lot. She had a lot of fear. I don't know. Maybe I can't pay my mortgage. Maybe nobody hires me. Maybe people just want to fight. I don't know. You know, do they really want mediation or, you know, does everybody just want to go to go to court and get yelled at each other? So she didn't know, but it took a while 
and a lot of planning and a lot of patience. And then she was able to face her fear of leaving the safe realm uh, of what she'd known and create something new. It takes time. So just like a new posture brings up fear, we have to break things down into what is small and approachable. I've seen too many times people too impulsively quit everything to try to become something in yoga, when in fact, there's a way to work with the dharma, the path that you're on, to make it more aligned. Look, if everybody that practices yoga wants to quit their jobs and what? Become renunciates? Then how many, how many people are practicing yoga right now? Then what? Right? Where are all the doctors and the lawyers and the police people and the politicians and the people who you know, are teachers in the world? And where are the, the restaurant owners who are going to think about things from the spiritual perspective and treat their employees with respect? Where, where does that happen if everybody who does yoga needs to quit everything and just become a renunciate? So we need people on the path of what's called a householder that understand how to live a good life and do good in the world. So if our life is not aligned, we need to take the time, not impulsively, not quit everything, not go join an ashram for 10 years, right? Unless that's really, really your path. But the idea is to how to take that foundation of our asana practice and apply the same methodology of little by little, little by little, one small shift, another small shift, another small shift. I have thought of many asanas that terrify me. Can you think of some asanas that terrify you? Lots of them, right? Some of them you are doing, yes? You're, you're terrified of them, but somehow you do them. How do you do them? Not close your eyes and a big impulsive jump into the abyss. No, this only brings more fear. So we do the asanas we fear by saying, okay, I'm going to do this one step. When I get good at that one step, then I do this other step. Then we have two steps, right? Then we have three steps. Then we have four steps. Now we take that same balanced methodology and you apply it to the life. And just like that, the change happens automatically, little by little, little by little, little by little. You'll be led in the right direction. Hey, maybe it's true. Maybe your path is to become a yoga teacher and give everything up to the path of yoga. Good for you. You'll find that out. But maybe your path is just to do what you do better. I have another friend of mine that started doing yoga. She was working in banking in New York City, and she fell in love with yoga. I love yoga. Banking. <laughs> oh, no. This is true misery of the planet. Only greed. Only greed. My whole day, I just figure out how to make more money, make more money. So much money. And all these people suffering with no money. All I do, I rip people off all day. She quit her job. Now, she quit her job on an impulse. And then she went to me and I saw her there. And she said, I've quit my job. It was so free. And then she got an email from all of her outstanding debts. And then she thought, oh, this is, I need to go back to the bank. <laughs> so anyhow, she has quit this job. And then it, she, she ran away from the bills for some years, which I don't recommend to anyone. You know, they're following you around. Even in the country, they find you somehow with email and things to you. Um, so anyhow, she came back and she created a different way. She still works in banking, but she created a different way to work with it. Instead of working for somebody else, she created her own way to do that. Um, and so this is, you can find it. Not everybody needs to leave everything to become a yoga teacher, but when we make those changes in a small and incremental way, we can find a way to stay immersed in the yoga community and follow our dharma, what that dharma is. Only we know. Mm -hmm. 
Another question on the chat? Okay, let's take the next question on the chat. So we got a question from Mel. Mel says, hi. And she says, thank you. Thank you, too. Um, is there a way you prepare or ground yourself prior to teaching, whether your own practice or others, right? So, uh, so the very notion of teaching uh, is itself a sadhana. So the idea of sadhana is a practice. So I take teaching um, definitely quite seriously. I tried, and I, the most foundation that I can give as a preparation to stay grounded, to stay aware, to teach is to make sure I do my practice. As soon as I'm not doing my practice, then I'm completely imbalanced. Very quickly, a uh, very quick sort of devaluation of my inner currency, you know, it just kind of really gets quite worthless quite soon um, without the practice. So I'm really grateful for the practice. Everyone is teaching. You want to stay committed to the practice, keep the practice. That's it. Nothing more than that. What you practice, you teach. What you don't practice, you don't teach. That's as simple as that. That's the only way we can stay grounded in who we are. Do we have to do the crazy asanas? No. But to stay grounded in the asana practice, if you're an asana teacher, absolutely. If we want to teach any other forms of interacting with the spiritual path, we have to practice them. What you practice, you teach. What you don't practice, you don't teach. And in that way, it's a very clear benchmark of, you know, how to stay on the path. Practice keeps you humble. You know, as soon as you stop practicing, it's very easy to just live in a cloud of ignorance. So practice keeps you humble. And this is important. Humility, I think, is probably one of the most important things about stepping onto the path of being a teacher. Because as soon as you think you know better, and as soon as you think you're, you're the best, then you start to be um, kind of like a terror to the students. But as soon as you kind of realize, well, look, this morning, I also couldn't jump back, you know, then you're a little nicer to the person that also cannot jump back. But if you're just there in your sort of perfection of yourself, then this creates a separation between you and the student. So having a teacher, having a daily practice is probably the best thing to do. The second thing that can be very useful is if you yourself are disturbed, whether you're teaching or in any other way, sometimes we are disturbed. This is unfortunate. Like life is disruptive. Sometimes you know, you get it, you, um, somebody cuts you off in traffic and it's disruptive. They honk at you. Somebody yells at you. One time I was driving on the way to, uh, I think I was on the way to, to teach maybe something on zoom, uh, during the, during like the lockdown period and, or during like the, when we're more in stuck inside. And, um, and then there was a man on a bicycle that I was in a green, I had a green light and a man on a bicycle came out of nowhere and went diagonally across, uh, the intersection. And I mean, I had the green light, so I wasn't expecting a bicycle person. So I stopped and then he yelled at me and I was so disturbed because I felt like I should be yelling at you. You know what I mean? I should be yelling at you and you're yelling at me. And I was totally like flustered from it for a while. And I just felt like the biker, he, he, nearly, he nearly made a suicide in my car. And now he yelled at me. And I should be yelling at him. And so this was, this was, so I felt like totally flustered. And I, I, I and I was glad that I was teaching on, on, on like online because when you have that feeling of feeling ungrounded yourself, one of the things I can recommend is at least physically don't assist anyone else until you, you, you feel calm within your own body. So if I had been teaching in person, I probably would have come and like try to sit down for a moment and just not give anyone any physical adjustments until I could feel more calm. And this is important because whatever energy you have, you're going to share it with the students. So, you know, life circumstance happens. You can't control 
but be aware, be conscious and aware of what your thoughts are, what your feelings are, and how you feel in your body as you're interacting and with the students. And I think this helps. Hmm? Good. There's another question in the chat. Another question in the chat. Uh, anybody in person? Just <laughs> <laughs> to give you a chance before everybody. It's easier for them. They can type into the into the chat. It's less, um, you know. Okay, we'll take the one from the chat. Let's see. Okay. Saranji says, if we are surrounded by people who are not on the spiritual path, what can we do? You mentioned to send them metta, but should we also avoid them or stay around them? They don't always want to be helped or to change. Okay, this is an interesting question. Saranji, thank you for asking this question. This is a very interesting question. If you're surrounded by people who are not on the spiritual path, you want to think about this, awareness and equanimity. So the first thing is to become aware. So you become aware. Wonderful. Look, all these people, lost, suffering, miserable. I'm surrounded by them all the time. Have you ever said something like that in your life? You know, maybe. So now we think I'm surrounded by miserable, suffering people. Then equanimity. Do not judge. Do not judge. Oh, look at them. So ignorant. So dumb. No, you'll never be a help to them. As long as you have that in your mind. Oh, ignorant, dumb. Look at you all. So lost. Poor you. You know, to respond in the moment with compassion is very hard. However, you asked if you should leave them alone or be around them. This is where awareness and equanimity needs to include awareness of yourself. If these individuals are creating an unsafe space for you, if they are engaging in acts of harm for you, it could be verbal acts of harm, it could be someone making you just not feel comfortable or welcomed or acting in a way that is registering as harmful for you. You don't need to stay there in their presence and send them metta. You want to remove yourself from any harmful situations in your life. This is very important. Some people think, oh, I'm not a yogi because I can't be around all of these people that are creating harm. No, this is completely misunderstanding what metta and what ahimsa, this nonviolent path, is actually about. As soon as you realize these individuals are creating harm if I stay in their presence. Physical harm, definitely. Mental harm, emotional harm. You can remove yourself from that situation. And you can still send the metta from far away, from a safe distance. Even somebody that has harmed you 20 years ago, you can send the metta. You never have to see them again. You don't need to be friends again in order to live in harmony and balance. Maybe the harmony and balance is to be on the other continent. This is okay, right? So when we think about the idea of uh, harm, it's important for us to recognize when we're in an unsafe environment. And then we remove ourselves from that unsafe environment with awareness and equanimity. So we try to remain equanimous at the same time while recognizing the path of wisdom. I realize this is no longer safe for me, so I'm now exiting this space. But we try our best to remain equanimous, non-judgmental. This is the hard part, because when someone has harmed us or has created a space of harm for us, it's very hard to remain equanimous in their presence. Very difficult, very difficult. So easy to judge, so easy to judge. But truly, we cannot see the whole picture. All we can know is, I do not feel safe here, so to take care of me, I will leave now. You can make an announcement or you can just leave. Up to you. Maybe just leave. <laughs> Better. <laughs> so, so in that in that way, when you're when you're around other beings that are not on the spiritual path, if they're creating harm, we have to set a firm boundary. On the other hand, if we're around 
other spiritual beings that for whatever reason, they are, they're not on the path, but they're not harming you. You know, you see, they're not harming you. They're just ignorant of the path. They're not spiritual, but they don't harm you. In fact, they really love you. They're just not spiritual. You have some family members like this, that they really love you. They're not harming you. Just not spiritual. You know, they go on doing all of the non-spiritual things, but they really love you. You know, even they love that you do yoga so good for you, this yoga you do. Keep doing it. Oh, what about you? You want to come? Oh, it's not for me, but I love that you do it. You're so kind and so peaceful. You're so nice. And they send you love and they love you. But then they don't eat healthfully. They don't do spiritual things. They won't do meditation. They won't do yoga. These people, they are not harming you. Just love them as they are. Right? When they want to come onto the path, they're going to come on the path. Definitely, if you try to browbeat them to come onto the path, then they're going to stay away longer. So in that way, you can just lead with the light. Right? You don't need to force them to do the practice. But make sure to make a differentiation so you have awareness and equanimity. You're aware. Here I am with these people that are not on the path. I am not experiencing harm. In fact, they're loving me. Great. This is a safe space for me. I can continue to love them. Here are these people that are not on the path. And when I'm in their presence, I experience harm. Let me create a boundary so that I can remain safe and continue the work of my path. This is a very important distinction to make. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. Okay. So I know uh, when you went to India, very fast mm -hmm. Very fast Yeah. Right? Yeah. So yeah. Bangalore. Landed in Bangalore. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my favorite. Yeah. No, it's a good question. My first trip to India was more than twenty years ago. I've been going back and forth. Um, for more than 20 years. So the first, I know, first time, first time. So first time I had moved from, from Florida to New York City. And everybody has thought, oh, India is so different. Oh, it's like this. Oh, it's like that. So it's crazy. And all the, the people were telling me to expect this. People gave me a list like of an arsenal of things to bring. You know, you have to bring bunk spray and you need to bring hats and you need to bring a mosquito net and you need this. And I was like, oh my God, where am I going? You know, <laughs> you need this and that and this and that and this pill and that pill and this injection and that injection. And I thought, oh, my God, this is crazy. But, I, you know, I don't know. I've never been before. And then the first thing when I landed in Bangalore, it was the middle of the night, my, my plane landed at like 3.30 a.m. in the middle of the night. I walked out. The first thing that I thought was, looks like Florida. <laughs> <laughs> everyone's like oh it's so different it's different and i was like that's a palm tree and that's a jacaranda tree and look they got bougainvillea over there and then i was just like this is not that different a little more dry but it's uh not that different and so first my very first impression was like we have the same vegetation um and then it was really dark and it took a really long time to get to mysore so we were in these old um what are they like ambassador cars like these old like giant cars you know and i would sit in the back and then the driver he didn't speak any english and i didn't say anything in canada and so i just i had a friend of mine had arranged this car to be there so there's a man standing with my name with the sign with my name on it so i thought i'm going to this man right definitely it's my driver so that i just was in that car and i was just glued to the even though it was dark i had my face just glued to the glass and I was just watching, like, look, a palm tree, palm tree, palm tree. And then suddenly I remember seeing um, this, uh, this, the, like, this oxen. 
I'd never seen the oxen in person before. I'm a city girl, you know, I'm raised in Miami and, you know, maybe you'd never been on a farm before I went to India, (laughs) you know? And um, so I just saw this oxen carrying this huge thing of hay. I just remember feeling like, wow, this is so cool. Look at that. And I wanted to pet all the animals. Every animal I saw, I wanted to pet. This was the first thing. I would go up to cows and try to pet them. People would be like, what are you doing? I'm like, it's a nice thing. It's a, I want to pet the animal. Okay, you can pet the cow. Go ahead. And so I just wanted to pet all the animals. Um, and there were very few people, very few yoga students at the time. It was in uh, after the four-hour taxi drive there, then they dropped me off in the only address that I had in Mysore at the time, which was the Ashtanga Yoga Nilayam in Old Lakshmipuram in Mysore. And they dropped me off there. I had this giant backpack because, again, everyone's, you need to bring a backpack. I'm like, okay. I had to buy a backpack. I used to use luggage, you know, like with wheels. It's better. You can't use that in India. Okay, where am I going? You know, again, <laughs> so I bought this giant, I'm here with this giant backpack to fit all of this list of arsenal of things in. The backpack is as big as I am. And I'm here like this. I can't carry this thing. I'm shaking. The driver, he dropped me off and was like, good day, madam. And he left. And I was like, ah! you know, I'm standing alone, you know, in this place I've never been in. I rec- the vegetation was at least familiar. I walked to the back and I heard some yoga thing happening, you know. And so then I saw Patavi Joyce. He walked out. He looked directly at me. First thing he said, you wrote letter? Letter. Yes, I wrote the letter. 6 a.m. tomorrow, take practice. And then he went back and started to teach to other people. And then I did the registration later. He was the first person, the second person besides the driver that I interacted with, the first person that I talked to. And then I was like, okay, 6 a.m. Now what? You know what I mean? There was no internet. I didn't have a phone. You know, think about 20 years ago, I had no mobile phone. There was no internet readily available. And then I'm thinking like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. So I just stood there for a little bit. Luckily, my friend who arranged the, the car for me um, came out of practice. He was like, Kino, you're here. Where are you staying? He went, I have no idea. <laughs> there was no booking service. There was no travelocity. I just showed up and he said, oh, you can go to the Cavalry Lodge. Maybe they have a room for you. So then I said, oh, where is that? Come, let's go in a rickshaw. I'll take you there. So then we go in the rickshaw and we go over there and we go in and then he introduces me and says, you know, this is my, this is my friend Kino. It's her first time in my store. Do you have a room? And they were very excited. Yes, madam, we have a room for you. Absolutely. Uh, best room. And I was like, best room? Fabulous. Take me to the best room. And I went in and, and then, and then, and then I remember this at first, this like first impression. I put my stuff down. And then a very small boy, maybe like nine years old, said, Madam, hot water. And I was like, yes, yes, definitely. Hot water. And I'm thinking he's going to point at which, like, which of the tap. And then he says, moment. And then he runs away. And I was like, okay. I have no idea. Only, I've only ever known hot water comes directly out of the tap. That's what it does. It's, all I've ever known. That's it. Miami. So I'm like, and I'm like, okay, he left. I was like, okay, he's, I just thought he's going bonkers. You know, I don't know. I close the door. I start unpacking, trying to figure out malaria pills. Don't like those. And then I'm like, what did I bring? What did I bring? What did I bring? I was also a little hungry. So I was thinking, do I have any nuts in this giant backpack of mine? Um, then the kid comes back with a bucket of hot water. <laughs> and, then he, and then he knocks on the door and he says, madam, hot water is here. <laughs> 
hot water is here. So I think, great, hot water. And I, I was so confused, though. I felt like, but what? What? Uh, what? And then he, he just, he's like, move, move. So he makes me move. He goes, he puts it in the shower area. And then, and then I, I realize this is my hot water. <laughs> I'm going to have a shower somehow in relationship with this bucket. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Out to go. And then I realized that this is, I need to shower right now because <laughs> there's no little boiler under the uh, bucket. So I'm like, okay. So then I get off all the clothes and I'm there like, all right. Okay. Don't touch the hair. Definitely don't touch the hair. That's what I was thinking. Don't, don't wet the hair. You know, that's my, my number one concern at this point. Cause I thought I have this much water. I got a lot of, I, at this, at that time, I didn't have a lot of hair. I had just, I actually shaved my head uh, out of some crazy moment of <laughs> impulsiveness to change my life, <laughs> so, you know? Um, and that honestly, for many people in India, this has confused many people that I am female with a shaved head. This is very confusing. Some people came up to me and said, lice? <laughs> looks like, no, just some crazy girl from USA. Yes. <laughs> People came up to me and said, Tibet? <laughs> Tibet? And I was like, no, uh, Japanese, uh, but not uh, Tibet. Uh, no, monk lady? No. And I started to let my hair grow out. I was like, I'm just let it grow out. This is easier. Also, nobody would cut my hair that trip. I went and I was like, just shave it off again. It would grow like this much. Shave it off. And then like people, the, all of the people in the, would say to me, no. And I was like, no, what do you mean? I'll pay you. I'm paying you. Please shave it off. No. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? No, Sh please shave my head. And then they would, that's when they said, lice? No lice. I just want, I want to, I want it off. You know, just get it off. Lady, long hair. <laughs> and I would have these arguments like, no, I'm a lady, but I want it off. But monk? No, I'm not a monk. I just want, I just, I want my head shaved. And it was just, I was, there was this thing and they just would not shave my head. So the whole time I was there, it grew to this little, and the first thing I did when I landed in New York City, I went to just a random barber shop and I was like, shave this off. They're like, absolutely. I'm like, yes, this is what we're talking about here. <laughs> it cost five bucks and I was super happy. I would have paid that same $5. It would have been a fortune to the barbers in India at that time. I was there like trying to show, like, I'll pay you an enormous sum to shave my head. They would not do it. Interesting. Um, and so I did the bucket shower. So the bucket shower, that was really cool. Uh, I did that. And then the place that I stayed had also a bucket shower. And then we got a boiler about halfway through my trip. So a boiler is like a, a private water heater. So we had this like electrical team come in because a friend of mine was like, you know, you can't be doing this. You can't be like, you know, because there were the, 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 the way to heat up the water was to burn things. And then you would have this vessel that would heat up so you could burn coconut shells, you know? And then they were like, you know, you can't, like, you need a boiler. I need a boiler. I definitely, I want a boiler. What's that? You know, it's the private water heaters and like the electrical insulation comes and then they come and they put the boiler. And so it was a, it was a really, it was amazing um, because there were all of these things that I had taken for granted. But suddenly I realized it opened my mind to all of these kind of, you know, creature comforts that I'd never lived without. Suddenly I lived without them and I realized I am happy without them. I don't need the air at this particular temperature. And there were some of these days when I had no internet and it was I'd just done the practice and I had just gone to maybe conference and I didn't do anything in the day. And then there, the thing probably 
in addition to all of the new food, I had never had a dosa before in my life. I never had an idli. I never had anything so spicy in my life until I went to that first trip. There were numerous times that I thought my mouth was on fire. And then if the mouth is on fire, the rest of the body is very soon on fire or a few hours later, um, <laughs> you know, but um, I never drank so many coconuts in my life because at that time they were like two rupees a coconut, which I was like, yeah, I'll buy them all. I want all the coconuts. I want all of them. <laughs> you're crazy. I know I'm crazy. I want them all. I can't do like, you're small. I can drink them. I promise. Um, so I, you know, I fell in love with, I feel like India on that first trip. Um, the sounds of Mysore will always stay in my mind. The birds, there's a particular, um, like a whooping thrush. There's a bird that makes a particular sound. I think they call it like the Asian thrush, but there's a particular bird sound that um, is so special. I would be in the house with the windows open and, you know, um, no air conditioning, maybe just a little fan going. And then the sound of the birds, sometimes the monkeys and then the cows, but this particular, there's one particular one, the Asian thrush. Do you know which one I'm talking about? Uh, it's like makes a whooping sound. Maybe. You see that, but you hear there's a sound that's like, I, I, I can't do it, but it, it, they have them. It's a bird that's all over Southeast Asia. Um, but, you know, Mysore more than 20 years ago had so many more birds than it does now. Um, it was almost like a bird sanctuary. Now they have a bird sanctuary. But there's a the particular there's this particular I'm gonna find it for you because I think as soon as you see the bird you're, you'll or even the sound you hear the sound even more than you see the bird but this one sound was just like it brings me right back to that first trip and it's every time I've gone I hear that sound over and over again so it felt I felt like it made a connection into my heart space that did two things I feel like my sore is somehow my sore in particular is like will always have a part of my heart like a second home. There's always a part of me that feels like I'm home there. And I know I'm not Indian and I know that like, I don't speak the local language, but I feel like I've spent so much time there that a big part of my heart and soul like lives there. And when I haven't been back in a while since the pandemic, I haven't been back. I really miss it. I really miss it. I feel like there's some part of me that feels like, oh, I'd like to, I, I miss it. I want to go again. You know, and then it's not so much just to make crazy asanas. There's an experience of there's something there that's different. So I really, definitely. The other thing that, that again, um, to broaden the scope of the horizon, to understand that, you know, the way that it's done in the United States of America, that there are other ways that are equally valid, that work just as well, if not better, I think is a really important thing for particularly someone like me who was raised in like, you know, a, a suburban bubble of the United States. Like I never experienced life without 24 hour electricity, for example. I, I, you know, I didn't know that there was such quiet when suddenly all the electricity is turned off. I never experienced that. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Everybody, they just have to sit there, you know, fabulous. Now, of course, people have the generator and then like India becomes not like India anymore in some ways, you know. Um, but uh, when I came back, the, the like I said, first, one of the, I think like within 24 hours of landing, I got my head shaved again. That felt very good. But the first thing I did when I went back to the apartment, I will say, is that I turned the hot water on and I watched it. 
just for some time. It was very exciting. I didn't even take a shower. I was like, look, it's coming just like that. And it was, if you lived in New York, New York, especially those old apartments in New York, that have the radiators, they have some really good hot water. And it's like endless because it's freezing in New York and it just keeps going. And I was like, it's just, it's like eternal. The water is so hot. Wow. I'd never been that happy about hot water before in my life. It was this appreciation of like, wow, you know, the, this is the way that we've taken for granted. And there's this other way that has this logic of beauty. And I don't know, for me, it's just been a, a no, there was a, a, I spent more time in the United States for a couple of, a, a more time in India than I did in the United States over a couple of years. And um, that was really hard to come back to the U.S. after that. I felt like everybody here was crazy. You know, and as bonkers, you know, and, and everybody like, you then, you know, you, you see some people in line at Starbucks and they're like, excuse me, my latte has, does not have the right consistency, you know, and you're like, oh, okay. Like this is the end of the world. I ordered three Splendas and this latte, it does not have three Splendas. And I ordered oat milk and I can taste it's coconut milk. This is a big problem. I'm like, okay, it's a big problem. <laughs> have a latte. You can go into the bathroom and wash your hands and hot water comes out of it. This is a big problem. Just drink. Okay. They make you, and then they, and then they make you another one and they make another one with the person, you know, with your three Splendas and your coconut milk and the right amount of foam and the right, da, 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 and you get that and you're still not happy. And I thought, how can you ever be happy here in the U S you get everything handed to you exactly how you want it. And you're still miserable, you know? So, you know, it's a, it's a, it made, it, I was looking at people like that, like, oh, yeah, oh, you're all so crazy. Oh, everybody crazy. And then that question about how do you live in the place and no one's on the path? I really felt like that a, so a couple of times when I came back. So many more people are doing yoga all over the world. And I love that. It's India's great gift to the world, you know, that so many people are practicing. This is India's great gift to the world. So I think that this is why at the end of practice, I like to do the Guru Stotram because in honor of the lineage of teachers, that's my Shri Gurave Namaha. Thank you to my teachers. You know, thank you to all the gurus, all the teachers who come before. Without them, we don't have this path. However human they were with their problems, their faults, they're not, you know, it's not, they're not enlightened masters. They're beings that were on the path with their problems. That's my Shri Gurave Namaha. We give thanks. You know, we give thanks. We give thanks to our teachers that come before. You know, Shri Guru Vyoho Namaha. So we give thanks to our teachers. Without them, what then? What then? You know, where would we be? Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. 
Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.